Chapter 5 of Secretary Hawkins in Cuba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Secretary Hawkins in Cuba by Secretary Hawkins. Villa Casanova. And so we started on our journey to the Casanova Plantation. Riding in Montilla's automobile was great sport for Link and me, because Montilla was a fast driver, and we shot swiftly along the roads from one little village to another, past great plantations of sugar cane, and many, many gardens that grew the most beautiful flowers I have ever seen. And seeing these beautiful flowers growing in December, when I knew there was snow and ice back home, made it seem like living in a fairyland where nothing was real but all imaginary, like a dream, I might say, from which I was bound to awake and find myself back again in a cold climate and bare fields. Montilla's automobile speeded faster and faster. It seemed to me that all of the automobiles in Cuba went twice as fast as autos in the United States. The cars that met us flashed past before you could wink your eye. The drivers in Cuba must be very expert because as long as I have been here, I never have seen a collision. I have seen some of the automobiles pass each other pretty close, but somehow they always manage to skin by without touching. If they ever struck each other at the rate of speed they go, there would not be very much left of either automobile. We rode all morning, and about noon, Montilla pointed to a white tower that lifted its pointed peak into the sky above a circle of beautiful palm trees. There, he said, that is Villa Casanova. Pretty soon we will be at your plantation. None of us spoke. I guess we were all thinking of the same thing. At last, Link Lambert was about to step into his own home, the first house he ever lived in during his young lifetime. For Link had always lived on the river in his pop's houseboat, and I thought to myself that it would seem unnatural for him to live in a house like Villa Casanova. From the looks of that white, shining tower of stone that glittered in the sun before us, Villa Casanova was a beautiful house. From a river houseboat to a mansion like this is a great big jump for a fellow like the skinny guy. Soon we turned into a fancy iron gateway and drove through a drive of white pebbles that sparkled in the noonday sun like diamonds. On both sides of this roadway were gardens, beautifully laid out with rows upon rows of beautiful flowers of all colors. Ahead of us stood the big white Villa Casanova, and if there was ever a wonderful, beautiful house, this was it. 
I could not begin to describe it, but it was made of white stone with fancy iron gratings on the doors and windows, a wide curving porch, green and white awnings, a box of flowers on each window sill, and on the roof a carved stone rail that wound its way around the whole housetop. On the left side the tower rose two stories higher than the house, and I think it was one of the most beautiful houses I have ever seen. All of us jumped out of the automobile and followed the Cuban lawyer up the white steps. A colored servant answered the doorbell, and Montilla said something to him in Spanish, and the servant grinned and made a bow and said, Si, si, senor. We followed Montilla into the house and stood in a beautiful big room with tile floor, high windows, and many oil paintings on the walls. Be seated, said Montilla, and we all sat down. While we waited, Montilla pointed to a life-sized painting that covered one side of the room and said to Doc Waters, Look, this is the original. You remember I had a copy of it hanging in my room at college? Doc got up to look at it. Ah, yes, he said. I remember it, Montilla. You called it the Sevillian Captive said the Cuban. I looked at the picture as Doc was examining it. It was the picture of a beautiful woman gazing out at us between the iron bars of a prison window. It was indeed a beautiful picture. I never saw a face so beautiful or so sad as that of the woman in that large picture. It really was so lifelike that it made you feel sorry for her. Why did they put her in jail? asked Link suddenly. A step sounded on the threshold. We all turned as Montilla spoke. Ah, Signor Peralta, he cried. Glad I am to see you. My first impression of Signor Peralta was against him. He stood there in the doorway, a big, tall, fat, brown-skinned man with a thick, stubby mustache and eyebrows that joined each other over the bridge of his nose. He smiled at us as he said, And I, too, am glad to see you back at Casanova, Montilla. I presume these are the people from America. Doc Waters got up and shook hands as he was introduced, and so did we. For some reason, Montilla introduced me next, and Link last of all. Ah, said Peralta, we have met again, my nephew. It has been many years since you have seen me. You don't remember your Uncle Raphael, no? Link gazed into the face of Peralta and after a second or two shook his head slowly. No, he replied, I never saw you before in all my life. For a moment I imagined that a hard look came into the eyes of Uncle Raphael Peralta, but I 
thought again I was mistaken, for Peralta laughed heartily and patted Link on the shoulder. Well, well, he said, we must get acquainted all over again. We will start right away, yes? Link tried to smile, but somehow he seemed to dislike his uncle. He simply nodded his head. I will try, he said. Peralta turned to Montilla and they spoke together in Spanish. Seeing that Duck Waters watched them very closely, Peralta turned and said, You will excuse us, doctor, won't you, if we talk in Spanish? Montilla understands me better in that language. Doc waved his hand. Go ahead, he said, and then he walked over to Link and me and whispered, You boys must not talk to anyone. Say nothing at all to anybody while we are here. I don't like the looks of things. We nodded our heads, and together the three of us looked out of the window while the Cuban lawyer and Peralta carried on their conversation, of which I could not understand one word. Presently Peralta turned to us and said, Signor Montilla tells me that somebody has stolen his copy of the will. I am sorry, Dr. Waters, that you felt angry about it, but I assure you that it does not matter, because the copy that I gave to Signor Montilla when I sent him to find Lincoln Lambert was only a copy of a part of the original document. I have the true copy in my safe upstairs. Doc Waters smiled. Why didn't you tell me so in the first place, Montilla? he asked. I thought you would know that, replied the Cuban lawyer. You think we Americans can read other people's minds, I guess, said Doc, but I excuse you. It's just like a Cuban. They don't think fast enough. You fellows down here are too slow. You can't do anything for yourself. If old Uncle Sam hadn't helped you, you would never have gotten out of the fix you found yourself in with Spain some twenty-odd years ago. Montilla grew angry. Not so, he cried. Cuban people are very high class. We can do anything. But we don't let Americans come here and tell us how to do things. They come for our money. If not for money, no American would come to Cuba. All right, said Doc Waters. We won't quarrel about that. It seems to me your Cuban people like American money pretty well. If it wasn't for the big fee you are going to earn in this case, you would never have come to America to find a poor boy who was entitled to a fortune in this godforsaken island. Peralta raised his hand. Please, he said quietly, we must not talk of such things. Montilla, you take the doctor and his boys around the plantation and show them the place. Afterward, tell Gabriel to show them to their rooms. Montilla seemed to forget his feelings for the time being and gladly guided us outside 
through the hall to the rear of the house. A beautiful picture met our eyes there. Hemmed in by white-painted wood fences, a great plantation stretched away from the rear of the house, the waving sugar cane reaching as far as the eye could see. Through the fields at regular distances, straight pathways led through the fields. A quarter of a mile to the left was a group of white buildings used for servants' quarters. Opposite these buildings were the stables and garage, as well as the cattle barns. Far out in the distance, the high chimney of a red brick building marked the location of the great Casanova sugar mills. As we walked through the fields and saw all these acres of valuable sugar cane, and later, when we went through the big mill and saw the expensive machinery and the many men employed there, I began to realize just how rich Link Lambert was. I could not believe it then, and I don't think Link did either. He walked by my side and gasped at everything with wide eyes and open mouth. Montilla and Doc Waters walked ahead of us, and the Cuban was explaining to Doc how everything worked and how much the present crop was worth and what the outlook was for the next year. But somehow none of this interested Link. He was more interested in the goats. It is funny to say it, but there are more goats in Cuba than any other animal. Very few houses own dogs. There are not many dogs in Cuba, and those that I have seen are common, ordinary curbstones, all colors and mostly small. Nearly all of them worried to death with mange and full of fleas that keep them busy from one day to the next. But goats, oh boy, everywhere you look you see goats. Black goats, brown goats, white goats, and goats of two, three, and four colors. Little goats, big goats, billy goats, nanny goats, baby goats, twin baby goats, and triplet baby goats running after their nanny mothers and eating up everything they can get their teeth on. And Casanova Plantation had its share of them. They caught Link's eye right away, and I believe if somebody had offered him a goat, he would gladly have traded all of Casanova Plantation for it, taken it back to his houseboat on our river, and lived happily ever after. Look at this one, Hawkins, he said as a young black and white goat came up to us. He wants to eat, I guess. Somebody around here must be in the habit of feeding them good things. The goat looked up at Link as he spoke, as if he were saying, You're right, boy, give me a bite. Link reached into his pocket and drew out a piece of chocolate that Doc had given us in town. The goat came up and took the offered sweetmeat and then cried, blah, 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 or more. But Montilla came over and raised his hands and shouted, and the 
poor little goat was off as fast as he could go. Link gave Montilla a hard look. You let my goats alone, he said. Doc laughed. There, Montilla, he said. You've got your first order from the new owner of Casanova. You had better learn what he likes before you start anything around here from now on. Montilla smiled good-humoredly, but even then I imagined that he was thinking of the big fee he was going to earn from the Casanova plantation. Certainly, he said. I did not know American boys like goats. We chased them away. They are mallow, what you'd say very, very bad. They eat up everything. All right, said Link. We will build them a place with a fence where they can play and have a good time, and we will give them lots to eat. But nobody is going to scare them or hurt them while I am around. A silver-toned bell began to ring out from the east wing of Villa Casanova, and Montilla turned quickly and said, Ah, they have dinner ready. We will go right away. I am hungry. Then we will see what rooms Gabriel he make ready for you. You will like Casanova. Oh, such fine dinner what Delgado can cook. He is Peralta's chef. Come on, we must eat. As he led us back to the villa, I could not help but think what a selfish old fellow Montilla was. I wondered if we could judge all Cubans by him, but I hoped not. If so, I wanted to get back to my good old United States as quick as I could, and some way, somehow, I know Doc Waters would fix things so that Link could go back with us. But time will tell, I said to myself. The dining room was a beautiful place, and the table was prepared in elegant style. Peralta was seated at the head of the table, Montilla at his right, Doc at his left, and Link and I at the other end. We were all hungry too, and I was glad to get something to eat. But when the dishes were brought in and we tasted our first bite, both Link and I were not hungry any more. There is something about Cuban cooking that American people don't like. I suppose the food is very good, as good as ours, maybe, but the way they prepare it and the great quantity of grease, garlic, onions, or whatever it is, spoils its taste for me. However, the bread was very good and the tea excellent. So Link and I made a meal of bread, butter, and tea. Doc Waters, too, turned aside much of the food that was placed before him and only tasted a bit of every dish. But Peralta and Montilla seemed to think it was the grandest dinner they could imagine. Maybe it was. I don't say that it was bad, but one thing I can truthfully 
always say is that whoever cooked that dinner could not get a job in any restaurant in the United States. This afternoon, began Montilla after they had finished eating, we have a meeting here at Villa Casanova, at which will be present all those who have interest in the proceedings, and a formal reading of the document will be given. Very well, said Doc Waters. The sooner that is over with, the better for every one of us. I want to get this matter straightened out at once, for I have business to attend to in the States. It will not take very long, doctor, said Peralta, smiling a peculiar smile. Doc nodded. After he had said that, I began to wonder just what Peralta meant by that remark. There had been a queer look in his dark eyes as he said it, and I could not help but feel that if we were intended to see Link get what was coming to him from his mother's will, we had some hard work ahead of us. End of chapter 5